right, praise the Lord. Good morning. Uh, we're going to pray one more time here before I start my uh, message. Uh, just for those who have fear and anxiety, how many think that people are struggling? We're t- toward the late part of the winter here. It's hard to stay warm. We're not able to do a lot of things. But uh, But understand that God hasn't called us to a spirit of fear. And that means that if God didn't call us to it, God isn't the author of it, then we need to, um, in Jesus' name, not live in that realm, right? And so this morning, we're going to break the power of fear and anxiety. And you say, well, what do we have to do? Do we need to jump up and down? Do we need to yell? Do we need to shout something? No, we just need to trust in Jesus Christ and His name and um, the enemy doesn't have power unless you give the enemy power because uh, Jesus has already died for that fear and anxiety. And you say, well, what if I don't think of something real fast? Well, the Lord already has things planned. He's, the, the steps of the righteous have already been ordered, meaning we just have to walk in it. You say, well, man, can he give me about 100,000 steps in advance to tell me which direction I'm going? He doesn't do that. Your steps are ordered, and he'll give you a light, and you'll walk, and you'll say, hey, which way, Lord? And you'll walk that way, and God doesn't want you to live in fear and anxiety. So let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, right now we uh, recognize, Lord, the enemy. The enemy that tries to uh, twist our minds. Lord God, take away our peace. Take away our joy. Lord, I pray right now against every lie of the enemy that would say, Lord, that we should be stressed, we should be afraid. Lord, just like um, just like when the enemy came against King Hezekiah, Lord, and sent letters threatening. Lord, that's what the enemy does. He threatens our finances, he threatens our health, threatens our future. And Lord, right now we cancel the plans of the enemy because uh, you have plans for the righteous. Lord, and they cannot be changed, they cannot be altered, they cannot be broken, Lord. You order the steps of the righteous. Now I pray peace. Lord, I bind the enemy and I release peace, joy. Father, those uh, gifts of the Spirit, Lord God, those fruits of the Spirit, Lord, that um, you provided for your children, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. You would turn in your Bibles. Children are dismissed. Turn in your Bibles to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1. The title of my message is Living in the Light of His Return. Living in the Light of His Return. And, and, and as we get into this, we're going to get into the book of Thessalonians. And um, as we get into the book of Thessalonians, one, one of the things I'm going to illustrate to you, Paul's central theme in the book of Thessalonians is the fact that uh, Jesus Christ is returning very soon. And everything that he commended them for and everything that he asked us to learn from that book is that if we're not living in the light of his return very soon, you know, imminent return, if we don't live in the light of that, then we're not going to be the kind of people or the kind of church that Paul is commending here. And he gives a lot of real good compliments to this church, and they're not a very old church. There are a lot of young believers. So let me read in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy, these are the three that are writing to the Thessalonians. Uh, I'd say that's a pretty good group of people right there. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, which this is really awesome because Jesus Christ established this new thing called a church. And a church is defined as a group of people that have separated themselves for the Lord. They've been called out. They're the called out ones. They're a solemn assembly. They're people that have decided that we're going to live for the Lord. And you say, well, who all is a part of the church? Uh, Paul, when he says that term, is talking about those who um, um, have made a commitment to serve the Lord. They, they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and they're serving Him. And so he writes, a church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you, thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith. So he's like, this is a word that is Paul is just like rejoicing. He's like so excited because of the Thessalonians, what? Faith. I mean, he something he's heard about their faith has got him really excited. And this is what he's writing about here. And he says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, side note here, he didn't say continuously. Some people read that and say, well, how did Paul constantly pray? It just means he continually was thanking God for what happened in Thessalonica. Not continuously, okay? Two different words. Um, we remember before our God and Father, listen to this. This is what he's given thanks for, and this is a key part of this scripture here. We remember before God the Father your work produced by faith, your labor promoted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to really focus on that, those three things. Number one, your work produced by your faith. Faith produced some kind of work in these people. This is what they're being commended for. Love prompted some kind of labor in these people. You follow me? Work produ faith produced some kind of work. Love produced some kind of labor. And your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So hope inspired endurance. So the three things that we want to really look, and this is what Paul's complimenting this church on initially in this letter. And he goes on in verse 4 and he says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. So Paul's making a reference to the way he lived his life in front of them, which is going to be very important. Now listen to this. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. So what did they do? They took on the characteristics of Paul. And Paul took on the characteristics of his Lord. He said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. Do you hear that? They became imitators, and they welcomed the message in the midst of what? Severe suffering. Not just suffering, but suffering times two at least, right? Severe suffering. With joy given by the Holy Spirit. So they welcomed. How many have ever welcomed severe, welcomed the message during severe suffering? I have. 
Now, everybody's definition of severe is different, but they welcomed the gospel during a time of severe persecution or suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Who gives that kind of joy? The Holy Spirit. And so you became what? So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, this is a giant area. This is Paul's European trip, okay? Paul, uh, on his second missionary journey, first missionary journey, he goes all through Turkey, all right, which is Asia. He goes uh, to Cyprus, and he goes up to Asia Minor. He goes up to the Galatian area where the Galatian church is. He comes back. They have a giant controversy because he's winning Gentiles, and Gentiles are not becoming Jews. They're staying Gentiles, but they're accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ without becoming a Jew. How many know that? Causes a giant controversy. So there's a giant council in Jerusalem after his first trip. I'm giving you some information here. So, you know, if we keep repeating information, you just pick it up like it's second nature. But after that first missionary journey comes back, there's a giant controversy um, a lot of the believing Jews, those who believed in Jesus Christ, uh, they're having a debate with Paul. Paul, uh, at the Council of Jerusalem, establishes that they don't have to become Jews. They're Gentile believers in Jesus Christ. And here's how a Gentile believer is going to believe in Jesus Christ and live their life. And the Jews accepted it, and they all agreed, and they, they went their separate ways. Paul's now on his second trip. He goes back up through those areas of Asia, Then he goes up to a city called Troas, which is the ancient city of Troy, and he crosses over there into Europe. Okay, now how many would love to visit Europe? It would be so nice to visit Europe, right? It would be really nice, pleasant trip, plan it all out with a travel agency. Well, it wasn't so nice for Paul, okay? Paul goes to this city, and this city um, is in the northern part of Europe, Okay, northeast of, in Europe. He comes into Europe, all right? And Acts chapter 17 details what happened when he went to the city of Thessalonica. It says in Acts 17.1, When Paul and his companions passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is a giant city. It's a, a cosmopolitan city. It's a city that had all kinds of business that went through there. It, it was on the east-west route that went from Asia through Europe to Rome. Okay, Rome is basically the superpower at the time. Everybody lived under Roman rule, okay? And you say, well, what does that mean to me? It's kind of important because here is a church that God is raising up, growing, He's happy with, and they're living under Roman rule, right? I mean, think Roman rule is Christian rule at this time. No, it's the heavy hand of the Romans. And Thessalonica was a proud Greek city. So they were Greeks through and through. Greeks were proud of their culture. Greeks considered themselves more intellectual even than the Romans. And so here are the Christians trying to live in that society. And no, the Christians were not, um, they were not having great messages about the government and overthrowing Rome. Their message purely was this gospel of Jesus Christ. So they come into Thessalonica, and and Acts chapter 17 says, there was a Jewish synagogue there. As was Paul's custom, 
he went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Where did he reason from? There is no New Testament at this point. There's only the Old Testament. So he reasons with the Jews from the Scriptures. And as he's reasoning with the Jews, now remember, a lot of these Jews in Thessalonica and around the world, where did they celebrate their feasts? They went to Jerusalem. So they had heard about Jesus. They knew about the unusual things that happened in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus, right? They knew that the, uh, the, the, the veil in the temple had torn in half during an earthquake. They knew that the, uh, everything went dark. They knew that he died and they knew that there was a message that he was resurrected. And this is the first gospel, official gospel, group that is going into Europe, but some of these probably had already heard the story. And the reason why I say that is they say the world had been turned upside down by these people, and now they've come to us. Do you see the challenge that is coming upon Paul in Thessalonica? He comes into this great city. In fact, he goes to all the big cities and all the big seaports. And so he's in a big cosmopolitan city, and while he's there, he's preaching the gospel, and Jews come to salvation. Gentiles who are God-fearing Jew or God-fearing Gentiles, they come to faith. All these people come to faith, and how do you think that affects the Jews that are in Thessalonica? Not very good. It says, He went into the synagogue three Sabbath days. He was there three weeks. He reasoned with them with the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He said, some of the Jews were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. They rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob and they started a riot in the city. Boy, they haven't changed their ways very much, have they? They're still gathering bad characters up. I think this was the BLM of that day. You say, well, Chad, you can't say that. But it's the modern equivalent, and I'm sorry. But they gathered them together, and they started a riot. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world, and now they have come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the other Others postponed and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to a town called Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogues. Now, the Berean Jews were a more noble character, do you think? That's kind of an understatement, okay? Because they didn't get together the roughnecks and, and, and have a riot. They were more noble than the ones that were in Thessalonica, who actually dragged them out of the houses, brought them for the magistrates, and had to sneak Paul and Silas out of the city, right? But it says, they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of the Jews in the synagogue believed a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. 
Now when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word in Berea now, some of them went there too. They agitated the crowd, stirred them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left uh, with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Now, I'll give you all that background just so you know what's going on here. Everywhere Paul goes, the unbelievers, the Jews and the unbelievers, they paint Paul as an insurrectionist. How many know that? They're saying Paul is trying to overthrow the government. Paul's doing this and Paul's doing that. And I already told you Paul was preaching the gospel. He wasn't doing a political thing. He was preaching the gospel. They called him an insurrectionist. They raised up riots. They followed him other towns and caused more riots. Why? Because they were jealous of him preaching the gospel and people were getting saved. So now Paul has to leave because they want to kill him. How many notice that? Paul's went through a lot here, right? Paul is going through severe persecution. The believers literally have to sneak him out of the city just to save his life, right? He goes to Berea, then they come there, then they have to sneak him down to Athens. They're just working their way down the European coast there. So Paul, severe persecution. In fact, Paul had already been beaten in Philippi before he got to Thessalonica. So here's a man that had already been beaten. And, and, and the beatings back then were, weren't beatings like uh, you would see today. He got severely beaten. He had already on his first missionary trip been stoned. They thought he was dead. And he popped back up and they said, how's he still alive? You know, he's been through a lot. He's been severely persecuted. And when he shows up at Thessalonica, he's really bandaging a lot of wounds still. And when he gets to Thessalonica, you're like, oh, finally, I'm in Europe. I can relax. I'm here on the coast. And it's not that way. And so Paul gets to Thessalonica, and he's there at least three weeks because he was there three Sabbath days. Probably more like three to five weeks, maybe a little longer, but not very long. And so while he's there, he has one prominent doctrine that they're the most eager to learn about. And that's the coming of the Lord. And the coming of the Lord is the thing that is on their mind. And that's why this message, I do all that to build up to the message, which is living in the light of His coming. And so when He comes to the city, He recognizes that they're doing really well. In fact, He has to send Timothy while He's at Corinth because He wants to, He's eagerly, everywhere He goes, He's like, I've got to figure out if those new believers are still surviving in Thessalonica. Because what do you think happened to them when he left? They just want to stamp out the gospel. They don't want the gospel to be preached. They don't want anybody to know about Jesus Christ. They don't want them to be saved. And they're angry, they're jealous, they're mean. Do you think when Paul and Silas left and they weren't able to get them, that they just stopped? No. They immediately turned on the Thessalonican believers. And so as Paul's being escorted different places to save his life, they turn on them. And the ideal is most commentators think that a lot of them died during that persecution because their big concern was not only the return of the Lord, but what happens at the return of the Lord when some of us have died because we're being persecuted. Let me think this is some serious stuff. But Paul 
loves this church. And Paul talks about one subject a lot. And that subject is, the Lord is going to return, and it's going to be sudden, and it's going to be unexpected, and it's going to be like a thief, and he's going to come suddenly, and that is really good news. And that's what we should live for every day, and that's what we should um, establish ourselves in the light of. In fact, if you're living in the light of that message that the Lord could return at any moment, it'll change everything about the way you live your life. And if you don't have the light of His coming, you'll live in darkness. Even your faith won't function right. Even your hope won't function right. Your love won't function right. And the message to the Thessalonians is, those three things that they're commended for is because they're living in the light of the coming of the Lord. And they're able to do what they do because this light charges those three things that they were good at. In fact, let me tell you where Paul came up with this message that the Lord was going to return. Because we need to know this, because that's what they didn't understand. And remember, these were believing Jews. You know, they were um, uh, God-fearing Gentiles. These were people that knew the Old Testament. But Paul is delivering a message that is a new mystery. And he's trying to make them understand it, and that's what they have the most questions about. When he writes back to them, Timothy comes and says, Hey, Paul, you're going to love this. He said their faith is still strong. Their love is still talked about. Everybody in the whole area considers that church that you planted to be the model. This is the model that lives in Thessalonica, by the way. She is a beautiful church who survived persecution and grew. Grew in their love, grew in their faith, grew in their hope. And Paul says they are a model for all of Europe there. Achaia and Macedonia is all of Greece. Okay, These are the provinces that are around them. Okay, That's like saying that that little church in Henderson, they are a model for the whole Midwest. How would you like uh, Paul to say that about you? And so I want to model myself after them because they're modeled after Paul and they're modeled after Jesus Christ. And so I want to model myself after th- this church what they did. And so Paul leaves, and um, remember that Thessalonica, this is very early. This is 50 A.D., right around there. And 50 A.D. is really close to 33 A.D., which 33 A.D. is about the time Jesus Christ was resurrected, died on the cross and was resurrected. Who was there right after Jesus Christ resurrected persecuting Christians. Paul, so the guy who was leading people to Christ now was the guy who originally was persecuting, but he had an eyewitness view of everything that Jesus Christ did. He's seen the resurrection, he's seen all the miracles, he's seen all the signs. He interviewed everybody because he was looking for Christians, and he had paperwork to kill them. Then God converted Saul, and he became Paul, and now he's a preacher of the gospel, which is a miracle that makes me scratch my head, right? And so Paul, um, this is only about 17 years after Christ died. 
Paul didn't really go into ministry for the first 14 years, and now Paul's finally on his second missionary journey, and he's been about maybe five years into the ministry now, leading a team into Europe. And so I say that because this is one of the real early books. Like this is some of the early teaching of the return of Christ. And, and church, we need to know this because there have been periods of church history where they didn't teach the return of Christ. It disappeared from history in, in, in periods of time and they just didn't teach it. And Paul's saying this is the thing that will make you have faith, love, and hope to a high level. And so we need to know this. So where did Paul get the idea that Jesus Christ is going to return suddenly without a sign and he's going to come quickly and he's going to get his believers and we're going to go with him and we're going to avoid the wrath to come? Where does he get that idea? And it starts with Jesus. Listen to this. John in John chapter 14, Jesus is about to die and he says to his disciples, and if I, this is John 14, I don't have my verse down. And if I go, I think it's verse 1, and I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you will be also. Jesus returned. Um, so Jesus is saying, I am going to return and I'm going to come to get, come and get you and you're going to go where I'm coming from. You understand that? He's going to come, he's going to gather them together, and they're going to go with him, wherever he's at. Right? And he says, I have built, I have built mansions, I have built large facilities for each individual, so they're going to have a place to go to, and, and you're going to have a home there. Okay, so that sounds like we're leaving this world, right? And we're going where he's at. So the Thessalonian believers had heard this teaching from Paul. They heard that we're going to go with him and we're going to go where he's at and he's prepared mansions for us. They had never heard that before. Jews had never heard that before. This is the first time Jesus begins uh, to un explain what's going to happen to his church, okay? Then he goes on, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, he says, Behold... I tell you a mystery, which means something that hasn't been revealed yet. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, Paul clearly believed and taught, believers will be alive when Jesus returns in the moment. You hear that when he returns, we will be alive. And you say, well, why is that a big deal? Because if I'm a mid-tribber, if I believe God is going to release us in the middle of the tribulation and that he's returning at the end of the tribulation, then why are all these believers still alive whenever he takes us up? <laughs> Think about it. Why is all, are all of them still on the earth? When you read Revelation, you realize by the end, all the believers are gone, right? So Jesus Christ has promised that the dead in Christ will rise and all who remain will be with him in the air. And so the Thessalonians had heard this from Paul. They heard the teachings that Jesus had just taught. If you really think about 15 years isn't very long ago. I can remember things very clearly from 15 years ago. Paul, they had to be etched in his mind because he was in the middle of the whole drama. He was a leading Jewish teacher, uh, probably like a modern-day senator, really, and he was the one in charge of getting rid of the Christians. Okay, And he was, he was very good at what he did. 
And uh, so Paul had heard all these teachings of Christ. Then, in fact, let me give you a comparison here that I think is very important. Very important teaching on the return of Christ. The event that we call the rapture, which is the sudden, no sign, taking all believers up, okay? That is what happens before the wrath of God is poured on this earth. I mean, you know there's going to come a day... It's called the day of the Lord. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come quickly. There's going to be a rapture. We're going to be out of here. We're not going to be suffered to endure that wrath. And then there's going to be seven years of tribulation. And then there'll be what's called the second coming of Christ. And you say, is it possible that they're the same event? And this is where people online will say, yeah, there's no such thing as a rapture. It's the same thing as the second coming. But listen to this. The rapture, Christ comes for his own. The second coming, he comes with his own. So how are we going to be with him if at his coming we stay on the earth and set up his kingdom? It's impossible. We have to go with him first, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then we come back with him. The rapture, Christ comes for his own. He's not even touching the earth. He's just saying, okay, it's time. Wrath's about to come on the earth. I want all mine with me. And and, and suddenly, without a notice, like a thief in the night, he shows up and the believers are gone from this earth. And what do you think is going to happen on this earth? Man, the Democrats, they're going to say, finally. And you say, well, Chad, you shouldn't say that. but, but, But can I tell you something? I'm not a big fan of the Republicans. The Democrats are destroying our nation fast, and the Republicans are destroying our nation slow. And I don't know which one's better. But let me tell you something. When all the believers are gone from this earth, a lot of people are going to fill that vacuum and say, now it's time to do what we wanted to do all along. But listen to this. I'm giving you more comparisons here. Christ comes in the air at the rapture. Christ comes to the earth during the second coming. He never touches the ground at the rapture. He's in the air and he says, okay, come on. And we meet it with him in the air in a moment in the twinkling of an eye we're changed. But at the second coming, we actually, he actually comes on the earth. His feet touch the ground. There's an earthquake and now the final uh, judgment is being completed when he comes back on the second coming. Um. The rapture, he claims his bride. A second coming, he comes with his bride. Kind of hard to do both at the same time. Unless you go up and circle down and come right back down. You know, that's the only way you can do it. The rapture is the removal of believers. First Thessalonians 4.17, very clear. The second coming is the manifestation of Christ. On the one, only we will see him in the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 18. But the second coming, every eye will see him. The rapture, it says, the tribulation will begin in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 9. The second coming, it's not the tribulation that begins, it's a millennial reign that begins. Two totally different events. Does everybody see this? Christ is coming at any moment, and we need to live our lives as if we're always ready or we're going to miss it. And we're going to have to endure what's coming upon this earth. The rapture, the saved are delivered from wrath. 
Second coming, the unsaved experience the full wrath. The rapture, there are no signs that precede it. First Thessalonians 5, 1 to 3. Second coming, there are signs that precede it. Luke 21, 11, Luke 21, 15. The rapture, the focus is on the Lord and his church. Second coming, the focus is on Israel and the kingdom. Let me know these things. We need to know this. This is what he's trying to tell the Thessalonians. During the rapture, the world is deceived, right? Satan is released for a final deception. During the second coming, Satan is bound at that moment and he can no longer deceive. I mean, know that. Two different periods, right? One he's bound, one he's released. Can't be the same event. Believers depart the earth at the rapture. Unbelievers are taken away from the earth at the second coming. Hear that? Believers depart the earth at the rapture. Unbelievers are taken away from the earth at the end of the tribulation, second coming. Unbelievers remain on the earth during the rapture. Believers remain on earth after the second coming. How many know that? Kind of hard to explain if you do it a different way, right? The unbelievers remain at the rapture because the wrath is coming. The believers remain on the earth because God's setting up his kingdom at the second coming. Those are two hard things to have in the same event. There's no mention of Christ establishing his kingdom on earth during the rapture, but Christ sets his kingdom up on earth at the second coming. Christians are taken to the Father's house as promised in John 14, 1 to 3. Resurrected saints do not see the Father's house, they inherit the earth. Amen? The rapture precedes the career of the man of sin or the Antichrist. That's his appearance, and the rapture precedes that. But the second coming terminates the career and the kingdom of the Antichrist. Big difference, right? At the end of the seven-year tribulation, when the second coming occurs, Antichrist is over with. His whole army is there and defeated. But the rapture happens before the man of sin is revealed, Okay, which is what he's telling the Thessalonians. So I give you all that to tell you that there's one thing that charged everything the Thessalonians did, and that was they were well-instructed that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. In fact, Jesus goes on. I wrote it down here. And sometimes sometimes you can say, man, this is boring stuff, but you got to know this. I want everybody to know it. I want my children to know it, my family to know it. I want my friends to know it. Because we have to live in light of His coming, and if we don't, we're not going to be ready. And my job is to make you ready. But Jesus Christ says in the parable of the doorkeeper, Luke 12 and Mark 13, he says, Be dressed for service, keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in in the moment he arrives and knocks. It says the same thing in Mark 13, same parable. Jesus goes to the parable of the owner of the house. It says, Be sure of this, this is Luke 12, Be sure of this, Jesus' words, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed the house to be broken into. You too be ready. 
For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. How many understand we've got to live in the light of His coming? Same parable, Matthew 24. For this reason you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. The parable of the servant in um, Matthew 24 and Luke 12. It says, Who then is the faithful and sensible servant whom his master put in charge of the household? Then skip down to... So truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions, but suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away for a very long time. Then he begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he is not aware of, and he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The importance of living in the light of, of, of his coming. Luke 12 is the same story, says the same thing at the end, but suppose the servant says to himself, he's taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him an hour he's not aware of, who cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Then he goes to the parable of the ten virgins, and at the very end he says, But while they were on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins were ready, went in with him in the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others came too and said, Lord, Lord. They said, Open the door for us. But he said, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know what day or hour he will come. Do you see that Jesus Christ spent an awful lot of time talking about his return? And I'm not done. The parable of the talents and the pounds. At the end of that parable, and it's found in Luke 19, 11, it says, Then turning to the other standing nearby, the king ordered, Take the money from the servant and give it to the one who has the ten pounds. But master, they replied, He already has ten pounds. Yes, the king replied, And those who use it well, uh, what they are given, even more will be given. But those who do nothing... Uh, even what little they have will be taken away. And as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to be their king, bring them and execute them right in front of me. So Jesus is telling parables that are just saying, you need to live your life in light of His coming. That means that we need to be actively serving the Lord. Now let's go back to the Thessalonians. Paul, the reason why I say everything they did was in light of His coming, is look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10. It says, And wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who will rescue us from the coming wrath. It says that in 1.10 to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, He says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not you? Paul's doing all this work so he can present them to the Lord who is coming soon. 1 Thessalonians 4.16, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be forever with Him. 1 Thessalonians 5.2, For we know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, 
While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. As labor pains on a pregnant woman, they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day would surprise you like a thief. You are children of the light, children of the day. We do not belong to the night of the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. Let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day... Let us be sober and putting on faith and love as a breastplate and hope of salvation. So let's look at these Corinthians. Or the three things that he complimented them on. And I'm going to close with these three things. Number one, he complimented them. He said, your work that was produced by faith. So Paul is talking about something that was produced because of their faith that understood the Lord was going to return soon, right? So what was the work that was produced in them? When Paul came in, they just simply believed. They seen what Paul was preaching. He was preaching about the Messiah. He was preaching about him fulfilling the Scriptures and preaching about him returning very soon for his own uh, he, he was preaching about the wrath to come that they were going to avoid. And he said to them, because of that faith that you had in my message, it produced something. And what it produced was every act of faith that this church did. In fact, they were persecuted. They had extreme, uh, how many think that it was extreme persecution all around them in that city? They were young believers, they were new believers, but Paul thought they were the model for us because they still maintained faith. When Timothy came and checked on them, they were still believing. They were still trusting. They were still getting up every day, living out the message. They were still getting up every day, producing work. In fact, later he says, work worthy of God. They produced faith that produced work that was worthy of God. And church, let me ask you something. When you believe It's simultaneously, when you believe it, said they turn from their idols to the true and the living God in verse 10, uh, chapter 1. And so when we believe, we simultaneously say, what do I do? Repent first or repent last? Do I do it before? Do I do it after? Simultaneous. They turn to the living God from pagan idols, which was all their city had. In fact, when you see the places everywhere Paul goes, it's the same thing. It's drinking, it's partying, it's sexual immorality. It's all these pagan idolatry things. And he said that they simultaneously believed his message and then immediately turned to the living God away from pagan idols. Church, we're called to turn to the living God from pagan idols and we're called to have faith that is worthy of the message that was delivered to us. When Paul came in beaten and battered and had been through everything, how many scars do you think the man had on his face? I mean, when you're getting stoned and they think you're dead and they're surprised when they see you pop up later because they thought for sure they killed you when they hit you with all the stones, you got to have a few scars on your face. All right, he was beaten, he was battered, he had, I mean, wounds all over his back from Philippi, he was kept in metal stocks. I don't know how many times he was stoned. Uh, Corinthians talks about, Second Corinthians, talks about how many times he was stoned, shipwrecked, beaten, you know, with rods, everything else. I mean, he just really went through a lot. And he comes to this place, and it says that they brought forth work worthy of God, and they were 
turn from their pagan idols. And so church, if we want to be a model, we've got to be, we've got to believe in Jesus Christ through every persecution, through every person who mistreats us. We're not exempted. We're not exempted from accidents. We're not exempted from bad days. We're not exempted from people that do things that make us really mad. But we got to be a model because of the faith that's in us. Because the world can act a certain way and they don't. It doesn't bother them. But we act that same way. Man, we got to come back and say, you know what? I want to model this faith to the whole region. I want this whole Midwest to know how we do it here at Wellspring. He's talking to that church at Thessalonica. It excites me. You're the model. They're like, well, wait a minute. We're new believers. You're only here three to five weeks. And he's like, no. We came back and you were still serving the Lord and you separated yourself from the pagan way of life. You know how hard that is in this society? To not live like the pagans. You say, well, who are the pagans? If you're There's only two, two separations in the Bible. There's the godly and the ungodly. There's those who want God in their life, and there's God, those who don't want God in their life. And to separate yourself from the ungodly in our culture is not easy. But Paul, Jesus himself, will look at this church, he'll look at these individuals, and he'll say, look, they believed in the Lord, and they're still believing. They're still separating themselves from the pagan way of life. They're godly, and they're not ungodly anymore. And God... God compliments that. God loves that. God loves the model of that. The second thing they did, it says, your labor that was initiated or prompted or led by love. Now think about this. Paul in the next chapter begins to explain the love that he had for them. This is a love story. You say, well, Chad, you never preach about Valentine's Day on Valentine's weekend. You know, this is a love story. Why does Paul take the beatings? Why does Paul go through what he goes through? Why does Paul go through? You know, Paul wouldn't even take money from them because he didn't want the Thessalonians to think that he was using them for money. He said, I will not put on a mask of a mask hiding my greed. And so Paul took great lengths to understand that I love you guys. Like, I love you, and, and all he could talk about was going back to Thessalonica and see if they survived in their faith. And then in chapter 2, he ta- starts talking about his love for them again, and he says, I'm like your mom. He said, I'm like a mother that cares for her little children with you. And then he goes on and he says, I'm like a dad who's always watching you and making sure you're ready for the world. You know, I'm always disciplining you and watching you, and don't be upset when you see me do this. So Paul's saying, I've got the love like your mom had for you. I've got the love like your dad had for you. And what he's saying is that in light of the return of Christ, that love will come alive. That love where we're a family, where we're brothers, we're sisters, we're, you know, we're, we're looking after each other, we're pouring ourselves out in love. And, and, and Paul really had to be careful because one of the things he had to deal with with this church was they were so loving, there were people taking advantage of them. You know, they were really taking advantage of them. They wouldn't work. 
because so many people were so loving in this church. And he finally said, that should never happen. If they don't work, they don't eat. And then right after that, he says, and there are those who need help, and we need to help them even more. And so Paul was trying to teach them to differentiate between the ones who are, you know, who are refusing to do anything and were taking advantage of people and the ones that really needed help, and he wanted them to do that more. And so Paul, just the love, do you know that your love is different when you live in the light of the Lord? You know, like you could really get sidetracked on that. You could be thinking about yourself all the time. You could be thinking about your own money. You can be thinking about your own needs. You can be thinking about all that stuff. But when you live in the light of His return, you don't live that way anymore. And that's what He was commending them on. They were living in the light of His return. The last thing is, and I'll close with this. See, Kevin made me look bad last week. You know. And they had endurance that was inspired by hope. Endurance. That means that uh, we're going to survive a pandemic. That means we're going to survive difficult situations. We're going to survive everything that happens to it. This church had endurance. They were in it to win it. They were in it to the end. They were there to make it to the very end. And the very end for them was the return of the Lord. Like when the Lord returns, we're going to be like Jesus said. We're not going to be surprised by the thief in the night. You know, I'm going to be sitting out there at my counter in my kitchen like it took you long enough to get here. You know, I've been waiting a long time. And so when the Lord returns, it shouldn't be like a thief for us. It should be like, I've been waiting every day. Why did you wait so long? You know, I've been waiting for you. I've been telling people about your return and... And you know, and, and we need to be those who endure like they did. They endured with hope, and the hope is in the blessed hope of Jesus Christ returning. We can't live one day, church, without thinking first thing in the morning, all through the day, and then at night that, hey, the Lord's returning soon. He could return at any moment, and, and that's how God is intended. It's called the imminent return. Study it in the Bible because the whole New Testament is full of this imminent, sudden return where Christ will come and then that will usher in a period like we've never seen in this world. We need to be ready. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet. Praise the Lord. Every message that we preach, there's a challenge. There's always a challenge. Never go to church and not have a challenge. And church, the challenge today is to examine your life. You say, well, man, I could probably fool you. You know, I probably, by the time I walk out, I could convince you that I'm right with the Lord. And the Bible spends a great deal of time talking about deceiving ourselves. You know, it doesn't matter whether you deceive me. It doesn't matter if you deceive other people. And it's not a mean spirit deception. It's just the human heart is wicked above all things, the Bible says. And so this is the time that we just examine. We're going to worship and say, man, am I ready? Am I living every day like today's the day? Like what is it that you're doing, you know, that is not worthy of the repentance? You know what I'm saying? God is, uh, God, God doesn't save us based on what we do right and what we do wrong. 
But God does want to see that that faith is producing. You know, that you're producing a life that is different than the pagans live, different than the world around us lives, and that we're growing in our holiness and separation to God. And so I just want you to take some time to worship and say, man, where am I at with the Lord? Talk to the Lord. Don't talk to me. I'm not your mediator. All right? Talk to the Lord. If you need prayer, we're here to pray with one another. We're here to love one another, encourage one another. So no, that's why we're here. We want to pray with you. And um, and that God would make us like that model church. Hallelujah. And I, I firmly believe that, that I need to share this uh, with you. There was a point in my life um, I was going through a very deep depression and thoughts of suicide and feelings of hopelessness. A very ugly time. And I was by myself at work. And the Lord just gave me, I, I can't describe necessarily, this was several years ago, uh, this sense of little glimpse of what it feels like in heaven. I can only describe it as the most, everything that we say, like a feeling like you're at home, uh, feeling that comfort that you get when when, uh, you're with friends, feeling that sense of uh, peace of where you belong, those, those words that we use, all of that all together and dialed up off the charts. gave me that he said you just need to hang on a little while because this life is going to just seem like a little while you just hang on to a little while and you're going to be in this place where there is no loneliness and there's no more depression and all these things you're feeling that they don't exist in heaven so you just hang on you get through this life and you're going to have that to look forward to but obviously that changed that dramatically changed what i was going through i just want to share that with you uh guys heavy on my heart Lord. I'll close with this. Um, it's actually a quote from a famous pagan. That's, that's a great way to close, isn't it? Um, but I'm going to give a quote from Alexander the Great. And it's kind of fitting because uh, Thessalonica was actually named after his sister. Uh, when he was dying, um, they asked him who is going to inherit the kingdom because he ruled the whole world. I mean, he conquered the world in a very short lifetime, died very young. And he said, give it to the strong. And so he basically told them, just fight it out and whoever wins. <laughs> he didn't give it to his kids or anything. He just said, give it to the strong. And uh, But anyway, he was uh, about to leave on his journey, a very healthy young man. 
very ambitious, maybe the most ambitious man that ever lived. <laughs> he wanted to conquer the world and actually did it very quickly. Uh, they asked him, he gave away all of his possessions. He gave everything away to friends. And they said, uh, and he's getting ready to embark on a journey to conquer the world. And they said, will you not keep anything for yourself? he said no he said uh, the only thing I will keep is the hope of my endeavors and what he was saying was that if I accomplish what I'm going to accomplish I'll have much more than what you have I'll have everything now the problem was his hope was in the wrong things and even though he gained the world he lost his own soul he would conquer the world, and almost immediately after conquering the world, he got a sickness and died right at the end of his conquering the world. Never enjoyed it. Never uh, really enjoyed the fruits of it. What I'm telling you is this. There's no greater fall in life than to put your hope in the wrong thing. I feel sorry for him because he gave everything away. He said, the hope that I'm taking with me will drive me to the dawn and never drive me to the night. Because his ambition and his hope drove him. The only problem was it was in the wrong things and there's no greater fall than to put your hope in your job, to put your hope in your marriage, to put your hope in your money, to put your hope in your kids, to put your hope in anything that is not the return of Christ. Because the return of Christ, I'm always going to be marching toward the dawn. I'm never marching to the night. I'm either going to die, you say, what an awful thing, but I'm smiling still. I'm either going to die and be immediately in His presence, which is a positive thing. Paul said it's a great gain to do it that way. Or He's going to rapture me into His presence. And I'm going to go with Him and He's prepared a place for me. And one of those two ways I'm going to get to that place that you're talking about. Church, if we don't have that every day, how are we going to have hope? How are we going to march to the dawn, you know, like Alexander the Great talked about? Now, I can't believe I'm quoting a pagan bit. <laughs> but I like his ambition, and I like that when it's godly ambition. Like, man, I'm marching to that dawn of being with the Lord, and I'm going to love, I'm going to have faith, I'm going to have hope. And uh, the world's not going to get me down. i just got to endure a little while longer. Endure a little while longer. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's close. Heavenly Father, we love you so much, Lord God. You've given us everything, Lord. Lord, we want to be like this church, Lord God, who is like you. Lord, give us that faith and that hope and that love, Lord God. Let us be spoken about, Lord God, like they were, Lord. Let us be a model for all to see, Lord, in our individual lives and in our church, Lord. And we ask all these things upon your saints, Lord God, in this church. In your name we pray.